You're listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, episode 32. You're talking about putting your fuck parts in my head where my brain lives. You know, in nature, only a handful of creatures made for life. But isn't that like cheating? We can't do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Why not? The safety word is banana. It is so refreshing to be with someone who likes to fuck outside the box. This is the Touch of Flavor podcast, dating and relationship advice by kinksters for kinksters. Join us as we tackle BDSM, sex, non-monogamy, and how to build extraordinary relationships in an ordinary world. And now your hosts, Cassie and Rigel. Right, guys, it's another Q&A episode. We're going to be answering some questions around unhealthy relationships, STIs and polycules, sex toy oopsies, and what to do when your kid finds your porn hub and much more. Let's get started. Oh, so what exciting has been happening in life? We have a new Facebook group. And oh, it's not new at this point. It's newish. But it is keeping you busy. It is keeping me busy. We've got a lot of really good conversations going. What are we up to now, member-wise? Uh, like 750-ish. Okay. So it's been growing. It's awesome. And we've had a few people write us in about discovering our podcast. Or discovering themselves on our podcast, which has been quite amusing. The HVAC guy that Cassie mentioned back in, oh God, what episode was that about the possessed cat? I don't remember uh, what the Possessed Cat episode is. No, wait, no. The Possessed Cat episode's about the religious people. What was the HVAC thing about? So the HVAC guy had swung in to fix our heater for our bedroom, and I looked like a serial killer was the, is the, is the abbreviated version of that story. Yeah, so he, he wrote in and told us he heard about himself on our podcast, which I thought was amazing. And then we've had a couple other professionals who have like done stuff for us, like at different points in the past have like wrote in that they're listening to our podcast. So that's been pretty, that's been pretty cool. Been pretty happy with that. Oh, I was going to say also one of our neighbors said that they're now listening to our podcast. It makes me happy. (laughs) It makes me happy. Like, how's your lawn doing? You know, the trees look really good this year, blah, 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 blah. Oh yeah. I've been listening to your podcast. Yeah. So that's been keeping us busy. The new training that we we put together, I think we announced last week, right when we had started, that's been keeping us very busy. The one about how the five steps to build amazing open relationships. We've done a lot of uh, tweaking and improving with that over the last week and answering people's questions and things along those lines. So that's th- those, those have been occupying our time, that and the Facebook group over the last couple. At least those have been occupying our uh, touch of flavor time. I suppose. So we did watch a really cool movie here recently uh, that is actually related to polyamory in the podcast. I think actually, I know we weren't planning on it, but I feel like we should do like a little impromptu review, which is. <laughs> Loud Plane drops keep falling on my head. Do, do, do. I hope they don't because then I will be. Do, 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 do. All right. Wow, that was... You're welcome. Took a All right, turn. It did. <laughs> I wasn't going to keep going with that. We live near an airport, <laughs> and uh, occasionally people decide we try and record at less flyy times. Like the weekends <laughs> tend to be 
uh, a little more air traffic. And when I say an airport, it's a small, like, private airport. But, you know, some people have the, the luxury of flying their planes in the middle of the day, I suppose. So, anyways, we had watched uh movie Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. I thought it was pretty good. Well, what we, I think we should maybe tell people what it was about first. I mean... I was just going to start with, I thought it was pretty good. And then I was going to segue. So, it's about the creator of Wonder Woman. And some of you might know this, some of you might not know. I am a huge comic book fan and I am a Marvel girl. I am I not. thought a, it was DC. Oh, there might be unreconcilable differences in our relationship right now. Okay. Just hush. So anyway. Superman. And I don't know enough about comics to sit here and harass you over it. Anyway. But one of the comics that is not a Marvel comic that I did like when I was younger was Wonder Woman. And so I was pretty excited about the movie coming out. And I knew a little bit about the history of the creator of Wonder Woman. And I was curious to figure out how they were going to portray it. And I was actually pretty thrilled with it. And what it is, is it's not Wonder Woman. It's the story of the creator and his relationships with his partners. Yeah, so, and I didn't really know anything about this before this movie. And so we haven't actually seen Wonder Woman yet, although now after seeing this, we've got that on the uh, the short list. But, and it's it's a story about him and his wife and, uh, uh, and then their uh, partner Olive's polyamorous relationship. Um, and apparently it's a pretty uncontested fact that this guy was in a polyamorous relationship with these two women. They lived together. And I think they lived together for some like 40 years after his death. They raised kids together. There is some dispute as to exactly what that relationship looked like, obviously, because they didn't really talk about it. Yeah, there's some dispute whether it was like a triad situation or closer more of to a, a V-ish or but at any rate, it was a polyamorous relationship in the like the 40s, I think. And uh, it, the movie portrayal of it was pretty decent, all things considered. There was challenges that they faced where you're like, oh, that's such bad poly. But they were real challenges, like challenges that we as non-monogamous folks actually face and struggles that are real. Oh, they're and not things- quite to the same extent as they were in the 40s. Like, I don't want to ruin the movie, but some of the things that they face that cause some of the problems are things that we don't have to worry as much about in this day and age, thank God. But I was talking more about their interrelationship problems that they had are common things we see as non-monogamous folks. Not saying that there are things that we should do or shouldn't do, but they're real. And I'm not like a love story kind of gal. Like I'm, I can't, I usually throw my hands up and I'm like, Hollywood fix this, this whole two hour movie. Like if they could just work it out, but watching it, I was actually very emotional. I was touched and I related a lot, especially to earlier years of open relationships that I had. Yeah, it's it's you know it, it's 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 a good movie. It's relatable. It'll definitely give you the feels. Although some of those feels might be like, oh my god, that's horrible, Polly. But it's uh, it's pretty decent. There's some kink in it as well. You know, it's it's definitely not a how-to guide for Polly by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but it it's it's good. I think it's worth watching. And there's some hot hot 
group sex scenes in there too, in case you were wondering. Yeah, some uh, role play. That was pretty awesome. So we got to watch that and we had a friend over and I think I found a new cuddle buddy. It was awesome. I got to cuddles. I got all the cuddles. I'm middle spoon normally, but I got to be like middle spoon and have a new cuddle buddy that's more cuddly than you and Amanda is. So it was pretty awesome. So all in all, I can't really complain about the last weekend. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. So, so watch, uh, watch the, watch the movie. If you get a chance, I think it's definitely worth it. We're, we're now, uh, trying to schedule to watch wonder woman because I mean, we watched this and we haven't watched wonder woman yet. So hopefully wonder woman is as good as this was. Although, I mean, they're two completely different producers. So who knows, but I can, I can hope. I think in totally different storylines, definitely different storylines. <laughs> so was Wonder Woman like your, your superhero as a kid? No, I was more rogue. Uh, I liked rogue from the original, I'm saying original X-Men series. I liked rogue. I related a lot to her. And I think part of that was since I'm getting into it. So Rogue in the comic books couldn't touch people. She had to wear gloves, that sort of thing, couldn't kiss. And I related to her because I was bisexual. I liked girls. I actually identified as a lesbian. So as a young person who saw myself as a lesbian, only being attracted to women, I felt like I couldn't touch them. I couldn't make the first move. I couldn't do those things. So I felt very roguelike. So she was sort of like my inspiration to still try to have relationships and do things and be myself, even with the struggles that life presented me on a deep, on a deeper level. There you go. That, that's why I liked Rogue, if you were wondering. Okay. So we have another Q&A episode for you guys today, and we have uh, kind of a, a variety of topics so I think we're going to hop right in. Remember, guys, if you want to send us in your questions, atouchaflavor.com forward slash ask is the place most people do it or shoot us a message on Facebook or whatever the case may be. So our first question is from RP40 in Alabama. It says, hi, I'm new to your podcast, so I haven't fully caught up on all of the episodes. But I do remember one about the awkward STI results and the talk after that. Uh, in case you guys are wondering what she's talking about there, I'm talking about me having to uh, tell my partners about the time that I came up in some tests, and that's episode 12, so you can listen to that. I have a question because I am slightly freaking out. I will try to ask this without confusing everyone. So after this, there's about eight or nine paragraphs describing her poly relationship. I actually had to sit down and like, do a whole diagram like Cassie was was laughing at me. But essentially, just to give you guys kind of the, the heads up. So this is it, it's going to be a question about STIs. And what's happened here is that this person, R, who's writing in, she's part of a poly group. And uh, at least as far as the people she's described in this group, it's like a linear chain of people like she's sleeping with her partner who's sleeping with somebody else and so on and so forth. But there's there's not so there's not like a lot of like people like webbing going on here. Okay, so it's like a straight chain. So uh, they were all part of a group. They'd all been having uh, unprotected sex for a time. And the person five people away in the chain tested positive for HSV2. And they're going to retest later to, to make sure that that is what it is. But she was having an outbreak and there's not really a lot of question at this point. So she came up 
with HSV2, uh, there's still some unprotected sex going on in this chain. The, the person who rode in is having protected sex with her partner, and her partner's having protected sex with the next person on. But there's unprotected sex further down the line. And some people have come back with clean test results. Other people don't have test results back yet. Other people. So it's this whole, it's this whole thing. Basically, five people away, somebody's HSV2. They don't know the status of the people in the middle, and some of the people in the middle are having unprotected sex. So that whole thing is followed up with this question, which says, it seems like common sense that if there is a potential risk, everyone should take steps to protect themselves and to prevent potential spread should they have it. But it seems common sense isn't really all that common, or maybe I'm overreacting. But from my viewpoint, everyone should use protection until everyone gets tested again in a few months. So am I being crazy, or is this a thing? Do you know of any polysex STI websites that addresses these types of problems? You want to start with us? Sure. So I think the am I like overreacting? Am I, uh, you know, is it common sense, that sort of thing? And I think that there really isn't a defined line of exactly what to do in this situation. Like there isn't a handbook that says, if you want to be a good poly partner and do this, this is what you have to do. There's no black and white there. Yeah. And and I think, you know, part of this comes down to the tolerance for risk, you know, among the people in your network, you, I think are finding now is different. HSV2 is not an entirely uncommon thing. Um, and it's, it, while it's not a curable thing, it's also not a incredibly, I mean, it's not life-threatening. It's not, you know, necessarily threatening to your health. And a lot of people don't view that as too much of a risk as opposed to, you know, maybe breaking up with a partner who has it. On the flip side, other people may be more intimidated by it because of things like health factors, if they have a weakened immune system. So there's going to be differences as far as what different people are willing to put themselves at risk for. And I think that's what she's finding in her network currently. You know, the the couple of people down the chain who are the closest to this person are having unprotected sex. And she's, you know, back here at the end with her partner and they're they're protected and she's they're using protection now and she's worried. Does it make sense for everybody to use protection until they get tested? I mean, if it was me and my network, that's what I would be looking for certainly i think this is a very individual decision though to the people in your group and what you may be finding is that uh you know the different people have different different levels of acceptability for the risk and you know there may not be a compatibility with with uh with those uh acceptable risk levels at this point that that's going on in your network and i think right now what's important for you is for you to decide what your boundaries are and then make the decision off of your boundaries of what partners you do and don't want to interact with versus making the blanket statement of should everybody be doing X, Y, and Z is to find out what people's boundaries are and what they want to do. And then you can evaluate from there. Just a a couple more things as far as that. So with any kind of HSV, the first couple months are the worst. Um, The first couple breakouts are the most contagious. And certainly, you know, the risk level goes down after that first couple breakouts or, you know, if they're using something like Valtrex, something along those lines, like some people use it during breakouts, some people use it every, you know, every day, daily. And, you know, if they're doing that, that can reduce the risk level a ton. And yes, you know, just from from a, a standpoint of you being able to make a decision, it would be nice for 
you to know, you know, everybody's test results and to, you know, for everybody to do that and take the time in a couple months to know what that all looks like. But that's their decision at the end of the day. And you can only decide what you're comfortable with doing. Yeah. And I think in this situation, if you guys aren't getting frequently tested, when you have an extended poly network of people, it's usually a good idea to be doing regular testing. Um, just so that way everybody's on the same page throughout any uh, time periods where things may have changed. Yeah. And you are, you are on the right track with, you know, understanding the period of time between where something shows up and, and, you know, people can actually be checked for it. Right. Cause there's a period of a couple months. Um, I don't remember offhand what it is for HSV specifically and HSV testing, by the way, too, is always kind of an iffy proposition. Um, unless you're, you're testing an active Sore, there's a lot of false negatives and some false positives thrown in there as well, which is one reason why like most doctors don't even do like say HSV one testing on a regular basis. Yeah, like 75% of the population has HSV one. I think that's all important stuff to know, but at the end of the day, you're gonna have to decide what you're comfortable with. And that may not be the same thing that other parts of your network are comfortable with. And that may mean that you have to make some changes in in what you're doing or maybe break some things off, depending on on how you feel and what levels of risk you're willing to accept. As far as is there a website, uh, I don't think there is a, any great poly-specific STI website that I'm aware of. There is a site that has some fantastic resources that, that's currently my favorite that has charts that will tell you it will break down uh, different STIs and what the risk levels of those are broken down by different sex acts and different kinds of protection Uh, with different genders of people because it does vary depending on what acts you're doing with what gender. And I've actually found it to be one of the most uh, useful and realistic guides that I have found. So I will link to those in the show notes, which are going to be at atouchofflavor.com forward slash slash zero three two. All right. So our next question, I apologize if I butcher your name. I'm going to do the best I can. It's Quailene 28, Virginia. My ex and I were supposed to be dating together. He just broke up with me and threw me out of the house. I know we were supposed to be dating together, but I met someone who wasn't a unicorn and I really liked him. He was angry because that is not what he wanted or we agreed to, but I don't want the one penis policy. Is this relationship even worth the trouble of trying to fix? I'm Polly and I'm not wired for monogamy and I'm, and I'm not just interested in chicks. You know that you're not monogamous. You know you're not just interested in chicks. That's fine. I guess the first question here is the question of whether you should be looking for a unicorn type situation then. And I I think that the obvious answer to that is if you know you're not just interested in chicks uh, is no. I mean, that doesn't seem like a, a good fit of relationship for you for what you need. Or at least not exclusively a triad situation. Like if you're interested in chicks and that might work, that's fine. But if you're also interested in having other relationships with men, maybe you could still pursue a triad situation where it's more of an open triad and you have other partners as well. But if you're looking to date other men exclusively, a unicorn triad situation is probably not going to work in the long run. Right. So that's, that's thing one. Thing two is, is this idea of supposed to be dating together Okay, so let me let me take two steps back and say I think this is a mistake that a lot of people make first coming into poly, and I don't know your experience, but first coming to poly, and I'm saying this including us, is this idea of, you know, we're going to date together, 
and it's going to be safer that way. And really, it's this whole it's this whole thing of security, right? But I don't actually think that that is a good policy. And I'm not saying it is a bad thing to date together. I mean, Cassie and I, we date together a lot. Uh, we play together with other people a lot. And that's all fine. And doing that is fine when it's a good fit. And that comes about naturally. But trying to shoehorn and say, you know, we're only going to date together, uh, you know, that tries to shoehorn any person who's coming in into being in a relationship with both of you when that may very well not be a good fit for them. And it's really just not fair to anybody, anybody who might be interested in either of you. So that's that. Now, so there's there's another part here, which is he's angry because this isn't what we agreed to. And that, I think, is kind of a separate issue because whether it was a good idea or not to, to agree to it in the first place, you know, obviously, if you agreed to it, there are some expectations of that. Now, I don't know if this is something where I don't know exactly how this played out. And from the conversation that we had when she you guys don't always get all of the conversation because sometimes we need a little bit more background was that they had an agreement that they were going to date together. And then she went out and met somebody through Tinder and went on a date, et cetera, et cetera. What's et cetera, et cetera. Like made out, went to dinner, had drinks, not sex, but spent an intended date with someone behind her partner's back. We like to talk about how you can cheat in poly relationships, and I'm, I'm certainly not saying that you cheated here, but there is a level of breaking agreements that you that you made. And that's not to say that, you know, OK, you realize this is something that you need and you should be stuck with the prior agreement forever. But I do think that when you've made an agreement, you have an obligation when you realize that something needs to change to go and try and change that agreement instead of just going out and breaking it. Yeah, I tell everybody there's like a two process when it comes to agreements and people tend to do the last step, which is the third step first, which is I just go out and break the agreement. That's not how you work agreements. The best way to work agreements is the first step is if an agreement is not working for you to then have a conversation around that agreement. Then Once you've had a conversation, both parties have spoken, have put out what they need and want, then you have to assess, is this a workable agreement? Can we make a new agreement that's workable? Is this relationship salvageable? Is this something that we can work through? And then you take the action. You don't take the action first and then try to go back and renegotiate an agreement. First off is a betrayal of trust. It's going to cause harm to your relationship. And any agreement that you're trying to change is now going to be 10 times harder to change because you have that lack of trust and those harsh feelings already. As far as is this, you know, is it is it worth the trouble of trying to fix? I mean, I, I really can't answer that for you. I don't know what you have invested here. I would say that I, I think that there's some shared level of fault here and how this has gone down this far. And, you know, if you care about this person, I think it's definitely worth trying to go back apologizing at this point would probably be a good thing and acknowledging that you did break that agreement if that's in fact what happened and apologizing and trying to see if you can negotiate a workable agreement, you know, which you, you may or may not be able to do at this point. I don't know the answer to that. But if, if this is somebody you care about, then I think absolutely going back and trying to renegotiate that into something that works before just giving up on it is the correct answer. 
All right. So our next question is from Deb, 41 in New York. And Cassie had to fill me in on, on a couple details of this because uh, I, I wasn't initially understanding the depth of this question. My youngest child informed me that one of his friends showed him porn at his house. Okay. Both are under 10. After watching a few videos, his friend showed my child a video of my non-nesting partner and myself fucking on Pornhub. What should we do about this? My husband is leaving it to me and my partner to handle. Also, should we talk to the other child's mother? So we actually added in that line to this question about that it was her and her partner fucking. That wasn't initially clear to me from the way the question came through, but as happens with this a lot, you wind up having further discussions with people on Facebook about these questions. And I was like, oh, that question just got a lot more serious than yeah. I thought it was initially. Yeah, kids watching porn, it happens. Especially teenage boys, you know. Yeah, close to teenage, yeah. But that part That's is hard. important part of that whole thing. So the first thing I'll say is it is normal for kids to look into things and discover things. In a regular situation, I would have said, yeah, have a conversation with the kid's parents. Yeah, let's, let's, let's address this. Let's address this a couple of steps at a time. Let's first just talk about 10-year-olds and porn, and then let's talk about the, it being porn of you, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, I feel like there's, there's yeah. a couple of so layers. Let's, let's start with that. So there is, there is curiosity at that age. You know, for some kids around 10, you know, that is an age where they're starting to explore things. Usually it's a little bit later, but for some kids it can be around that age. So it's not incredibly strange, I guess is the best way to put it, abnormal. It's definitely something that you want to like be aware of, maybe put some better settings on your computer, definitely have a conversation in that sense of with the child's parent, hey, my kid was over your house. This is what came up. And to have that in like a very civil way that is not like, oh my God, your kid showed my kid porn. That wouldn't be the way I would go about it. I would go just, hey, heads up, this is what happened. And let that parent sort it out with their kid on their own. And as far as you, you know, check your computer settings. As much as you can. I mean, it's, it's really, especially in this day and age, it's not hard for kids to get a hold of porn if they want. I mean... Yeah. So and it wasn't hard when I was a kid. And I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's only gotten easier. So do your due diligence. And then from that point, have a discussion with your kid. Like at the point where your kid has seen porn, you're then going to have to talk to them about sex. If you haven't talked about sex with your kid, this is a time to explain some things because you certainly don't want them getting the impression from porn that this is how you interact with, say, the mailman who shows up at your house. Or like, that this is a realistic depiction of sex in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think, you know, this is a hard discussion to have with a kid. I want to say hard. You're kind of on that borderline between how much information I feel like you want to tell them. You know, a couple years younger, and you would really not give them much information at all. A couple years older, it would be easier to give them a lot more information. I am a big fan of, so, I mean, first off, we're, have very blunt but age appropriate but blunt conversations with our kid about, you know, sex and sexuality. The other thing that I am a fan of that we have done is we actually have some good sex ed books. The guide to getting it on is a an amazing one and we have them 
in the house on the bookshelves and the kid knows that he's allowed to take them and read them. Uh, you know, and it's something that when he was younger, he didn't really have a care for. But now that he's older, I don't think he doesn't make a, a point out of letting us know that he's reading the stuff, but he's definitely read some of the stuff that we have available. Cause I think it's very important for kids. They're going to look at porn, but you don't want them to be getting their sex ed information and how they think sex works and women work and things like that from, from porn and how to treat people. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Like how to, how to treat people in a, in a intimate sense is not good. So you want to have that conversation with your kid. As far as it being you, I feel like it's one thing when your kid walks in on you. I mean, I feel like the hard part here isn't explaining your kid that you're having sets. It's explaining why it's on the internet. Yeah. Okay. We all have dirty pictures and we all have dirty videos. I mean, I have partners of mine who have some, could dig up some photos if they wanted to, but especially when you put something out there on the internet, have to understand that there's always a risk that this could happen. I think that's kind of step number one is when, when you're doing something like putting photos or videos of yourself online, A, the internet never forgets, right? And B, there is always this possibility that somebody that you know may run across it. And this, this thing of like somebody at your kid's school finding your dirty pictures, your dirty videos of, of you know, you, this is not an uncommon occurrence in this day and age at all. Um, so I think First off, just understanding that when you put stuff like that out there, you know, this is always a risk that you run. And also to understand that, you know, it's not only a risk to you to a certain extent, but it is also something that now your kid might have to deal with. I mean, if they couple years and they're teenagers and this kid's showing a bunch of other kids this stuff at school, it just so so stuff stuff to think about. As far as how to deal with it now that it's happened. I think there's going to have to be some honest conversation. I think there's going to have to be some honest conversation of, especially if your kid absolutely knows it's you, it's undeniably you. That Which I'm guessing from this yeah, is probably I'm, us. Yeah. So gu- guessing from this, this question, it wasn't like, oh, it's your mom's body and that might be her tattoo. This is your mom, right? You're going to have to have some, some honest conversation. We don't know from the question whether or not your kid knows that you're in a poly relationship or that you have another partner you're sleeping with. So this might be a lot of news and a lot of confusion for your kid, depending on the situation of how things are set up. Does your kid know you have other romantic partners? And you're going to have to decide what portions of all that information you want to handle first. And I think probably the first is addressing being honest that I decided to do this. This is probably not something you want to do. And maybe even taking a hit. You mean as far as putting it on the internet? Yeah. Like, you know, have it be a teachable moment for your kid. Like, I did this. Don't do this later. Don't make the same mistake I did. And go from there. Because you're going to have to, especially if the kid is identifying you and knows it's you, explain it. And the most important thing, I think, you know, this is one of those situations, A, you know, you don't want to lie. B, you want to be as, you want to be age appropriate with it, right? So you probably don't want to go into anything specifically if that's happening on, you know, that 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 you're doing in the video, but you're going to have to, you know, have a sex conversation if you haven't had that before. Uh, and you're going to have to have a conversation about you and other partners if you haven't had that before. So that way your kid knows that you're not cheating on your husband. 
And especially since your husband is taking this stance of you're handling it, there definitely needs to be a conversation around that this is consensual and that all parties understand it and it's okay. Because you don't want your child to also, while dealing with all of this stuff, to be wondering if his parents are heading for a divorce or a breakup. As far as talking to the other kid's parents, I would actually say no in this case. I don't see a reason that you should bring up to this parent of this other child that your kids are watching a porn video of you if they don't know. I really don't see how that's going to be beneficial, you know, and it might just wind up kind of spreading around the the peer group and you don't want your your child to potentially suffer the results of of that getting around your friend's parents. So I would say if she doesn't know, since it is born with you in it, don't think that I'd feel the need to go to her and vouch that information. This is one of those situations, unfortunately, where the best cure is prevention. I realize it's not an option for you at this point, but I'm saying it for anybody else who's listening to this podcast. You, you really do need to be mindful of this stuff, especially if you have children. Uh, our next one is from somebody who wishes to remain anonymous, 40 years old, New York City. Can someone live a mostly happy life after discovering kink and then leaving kink? I'm Jewish, and I always had certain fantasies and have been exploring kink over the last few years. But to be honest, I still don't feel quite at home in kink land. I want to have a much deeper connection, a family, and hopefully children. And I don't think I want to cut out the part of me that enjoys belonging to an observant Jewish community and married to an observant Jewish woman. I have met a handful of such women in the lifestyle, but all were way too young. So finding my future wife would have to be done on the vanilla end. I don't plan to try and introduce this person to BDSM. I think I can be happy, but I wonder if you encounter any people who have left kink behind. Have I encountered people who have left kink behind? The answer is yes. Have I encountered someone who's left kink behind and felt truly fulfilled and happy? In most cases, people have a large amount of regret about it. I think it depends on how much kink or BDSM, power exchange, any of those things mean to you? How much is that a part of your identity? And if that's something that is fully part of your identity, I think it's going to be very, very hard to just give that up. Yeah. I mean, this, this, this is really a question specifically to you. I mean, if it's something that you need and you give it up, you're probably going to regret it. If it's something that isn't that important to you, I think you'll be fine. And I think that's just something that you need to really sit down and consider. I mean, I've, I've seen people who left the kink lifestyle and been happy. Um, but on the other hand, I've seen plenty of people who kink has been a real need for them. They left the, the community usually either for religion or to please somebody else. And they've wound up, you know, unhappy and unfulfilled in that situation. And I would also say that you said you don't want to introduce this person to BDSM. And depending on the person, they may be open to it. There is a lot of closet kinksters out there. So I don't think that you have to necessarily give up kink to have someone who is Jewish, is wanting of children, who wants a home and a, and, and a family either. I don't think it has to be one or the other. Yeah, there are plenty of people who square being kinky or being poly with their religion. You don't have to necessarily give up your religion or kink or for open relationships or for anything else. There are plenty of people who make that work for them. All right. So our next amusing question is from Amanda 20 in Virginia. My dog swallowed my metal enjoy butt plug and the fur tail that was attached to it. 
We didn't know it happened until she was very ill and puking blood. We took her to the vet and the enjoy was clear as day in the x-ray. Needless to say, she needed belly surgery because it wouldn't pass. She is fine now and we're being more careful with putting our toys away after we do stuff. The experience was embarrassing, but my husband and I laughed it off. The new problem is our vet threatened to report us for neglecting our dog and swallowing and allowing her to swallow a sex toy. How do we handle this? So this is one of those situations that is both horrible and hilarious at the same time. (laughs) I honestly do not see how the vet could get you in trouble with this. I mean, really, the conversations. First off, if she's even willing to make this call, cool. But... So abuse generally requires some kind of intent and neglect generally requires something pretty egregious. Your dog getting into something that they're not supposed to and eating it is not egregious. It's being a dog. I personally think that if you were to ever to get a call about this and your explanation was my dog got into my sex toys, I now lock them up. I think is really as far as that conversation is going to go. I can't see it going any further than that. I mean, I would say if this progresses to like something really serious, we always do recommend calling the NCSF, the National Coalition for Sexual Freedom. And I will put a link to them in the show notes, but I honestly can't see this ever getting there. It seems to me more likely than anything else is your prudish vet is trying to shame you for having sex. Like that's, that's what I see is more, uh, is, is, is being prudish and trying to intimidate you because you're a younger person having sex and butt plugs and such. So I would say not worry too much about it. If say the SPCA calls you or something like that, just be honest. Like they know that dogs get into stuff. Ours has swallowed all kinds of goofy things, not a sex toy, but I mean, he ate a battery and a penny before. So dogs eat stuff. Like it's just a fact. They are Lovable, awesome things are companions, but they're also stupid, and the SPCA knows it. They're probably going to laugh about it and chuckle just as much as you. So don't get yourself all worked up over it. Kind of take it easy. Don't stress. Learning experience. Put yourself away better. Yeah. End of story. And you should be good. All right. Our next question is Brandy, 28, from Washington. Should you fear your dominant? Do dominants want their submissives to fear everything they say or do? Is fear necessary for a good MS, for a good DS dynamic? So I will first put aside kind of my horror at this question by saying that fear is a very general term. Like fear what? When you say fear your dominant, like fear displeasing them? Fear they're going to leave you. Fear they're going to hit you. Like, I mean, what? That, that's a really general, I think, and problematic kind of question, first of all. Yeah. When I first read this question, I was a little not good with it. I, I, I don't like the term fear because it can mean so many different things. And I don't think that anyone in a power dynamic should be striving for their partner to fear them or any kind of relationship like that. I mean, you're, 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 you've pretty much immediately crossed the line into abuse. I mean, if you're talking fear from like, you know, you have like maybe like some kind of consensual discipline set up and you're like afraid of the pain from that discipline. 
that's that's as far as I would be willing to go in saying that any level of fear is appropriate. And I wouldn't use the word fear for that to begin with. And the part about is fear necessary for a good DS dynamic? So in the case that you're confusing power exchange with play, I think there's a difference with play. Like I fear that my partner might do all the naughty things that I'm consensually agreeing to, but I also don't really want. That kind of fear can be playful because it's a fear within restrictions around activities and fun. And consent. And consent. But it's not fear of the person. It's not fear of what might happen to you or your relationship if you do X, Y, or Z. And those are very, very different things. And I sometimes think that people especially when they're starting into kink, sometimes confuse the lines of the difference between having that exciting fear play in play and having fear in a relationship. And those are two very different things. I don't, as a dominant person, think that all dominants want their submissives to fear everything they say or do. If the person does, I really question whether that person is a very healthy person to be with. Because if you're looking to have a partnership with somebody, even if it's a power dynamic where someone is the submissive or the slave and the other person is the dominant or the master, there should be able to have a level of trust and understanding in that relationship where there isn't fear and there isn't this sort of unhealthy pattern of not being able to be who you are or do things because you have fear of some sort of big doom out of it, especially if it's physical. So uh, without any more context, I would say the answer to your question is uh, you should absolutely not fear your dominant. It is absolutely not necessary for a power exchange relationship. It can be fun and play in the boundaries of consent. I don't think most people would refer to that as fear. Um, trying to think of a better i mean we we usually refer to that stuff more as like consensual non-consent or maybe being like nervous of the scene or or something along those lines but uh liking not to like it yeah but (laughs) but generally uh i would say if you're using the word fear that's probably not a good thing and it's definitely not something you need for healthy power exchange or that i think would exist in healthy power exchange in, in any in any definition that i would use the word fear all right our next question which I feel like these two are kind of maybe fortuitously next to each other, is from Cassie. Not me. Okay. Different Cassie. In Texas. That's definitely not you. (laughs) I think my husband is cheating on me. I've caught him jacking off the pictures of his baby's mama. I confronted him and he punched me in the eye. This is not the first time. I don't want to keep ignoring the cheating. How do I talk to him about this without making him angry? You are asking all the wrong questions. <laughs> um, the correct question should be, what is the number to the police department? And how fast can I pick up a phone? Yeah, your your concern should not be, how can I talk to, the, to him without making him angry so he doesn't hit me? Your concern should be, that fucker hit me. And that is completely unacceptable in a relationship. And especially, it's never acceptable. But especially considering you're saying, this is not the first time. Uh, and, and honestly, I don't even want to go into like how to talk to your partner about cheating and how you can, you know, if he's not monogamous and it's not relevant here, like the guy's abusive, you need to call the police, you need to get some help, you need to leave. And if you're like very fearful, um, we'll put a link to it in the show notes, but 
call the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Um, That number is 1-800-799-7233. Call them. They can offer you support if this is something that you want to report or not report, but they can assist you in however you decide to deal with this situation. But the way to deal with the situation is not to try to work around not making someone hit you. Like there is no excuse for that. You need to make sure that you are being safe and you're protecting yourself. So our next question is from Moon, 38. My ex daddy wasn't a good person. He told me I was a burden on him, my family and my friends. He said other heart crushing things. I've met someone new and all of our erotic tastes align perfectly. Not only that, but he's a good man. He's just dreamy. I'm so afraid that I'll give him my submission and service and all of my heart, and then he'll drop me. I want to be open and vulnerable, and I don't remember how. There's challenges because we both enjoy shibari, fear play, and all sorts of exciting edge play stuff. Big Daddy doesn't deserve my fears and trust issues. It's not fair. I don't want him to have to do all the work to help me feel completely safe and cherished. What can I do to heal myself so that I can shake off this fear and open myself? What can I do to lessen the challenge of him having to navigate my old baggage? So you're asking something that actually falls a little bit outside of what I consider to be our specialty. Um, I mean, you know, if you you want to, we're asking more how to communicate this and, and stuff like that, you know, that would be more something that I, I think we could help you with. Um, but, you know, you, it, it seems like you're, you're pretty clear that, you know, you have the communication, you have the tools, but you're, you're just having a understandably difficult time getting over, um, you know, some of the hurtful things that happened in that past relationship. And I, I think it's great that you're trying to because it sounds like you have an awesome thing going. And I think it's great that you want to do that. This, this sounds more like something that you would want to talk to a therapist about to try and work through some of that stuff that happened and overcome some of those things and, you know, to be able to move on so that you can be open and who you want to be in your current relationship. Yeah. I think that definitely working on the internal is necessary at this point, especially since you're working on the communication and everything else. And what we can do is we can put a link to the kink aware professionals from the NCSF on here because you definitely want to find somebody who is, you know, familiar with kink because that way, you know, you're not having to spend all of your time explaining kink or being told that you're wrong for being kinky and, and having to go through all that. So that, that's definitely something I'd recommend. We'll put those in the show notes again, which are going to be at a touch of flavor.com forward slash zero three two. And it's, uh, it's the kink aware professionals directory, which the, the NCSF, the national coalition for sexual freedom has on their site. And we'll link right to that in the show notes. All right. Our last question is from Mark 31, Maryland. What is some advice you have for a a monogamous person who is with a non-monogamous partner? Uh, The first thing I will say is that, you know, I think those situations can be difficult. Uh, You know, it's what do you do while your partner's out with other people kind of a thing. Um, But I do see plenty of them work and it, it can work with the right people involved in it. So the first thing I would say is I don't, uh, I don't want you to give up hope offhand just because you're not monogamous and you're, you know, you care for somebody. I'm sorry, because you are monogamous and you care for somebody who's not monogamous. So Mark, we do see people make this work. It's not unworkable. You can be a monogamous person who's with a non-monogamous person. 
and still have a happy, fulfilling relationship. So I want to put that out there as a positive thing. Like this isn't like a, it's going to damn my relationship. So, you know, take that and push it aside. That being said, the, the, the things that you're going to need for dealing with a partner who's non-monogamous is a lot of the same skills, a lot of the same tools that someone who is poly would need because you're going to have to deal with things like jealousy, communicating with metamors, time management. There's a lot of things Creating there. agreements with your partner. I mean, most of the same skills that you're going to need, you know, that you would need if you're non-monogamous are the same skills you're going to have. Uh, you're just going to maybe need some, uh, some ability to find some extra things to hobbies or, or things like that on top of it. Yeah. And that was going to be my second thing is that as the partner who is monogamous, finding activities, friends, other relationships that are not necessarily romantic relationships to be able to still fulfill your time and fulfill you. So that way you're not like sitting at home depressed because your partner's out on a date. So making sure that you're doing self-care and taking care of you. Yeah. So with that being said, you know, that it really is the same skills. I, I actually think the best thing for us to do, I think I mentioned at the beginning is we just did this whole training on how to create uh, amazing open relationships. And it's, it's like the five key steps that we think it takes to create amazing open relationships. I think that all five of those skills are things that you need in your journey. And instead of me sitting here uh, trying to you know, give them to you in a, in a couple minutes and not really cover them, I'm going to point you to the training we just spent a few weeks doing where you can go listen to them for like 45 minutes and get all that stuff. So you can you can find that at atouchofflavor.com forward slash AOR for Amazing Open Relationships. If any of you heard our training, we had one last year we were running towards the end of the year. We ran a bunch of times. This is actually an entirely different one, by the way. So feel free to check out. It's, it's entirely new information, somewhat similar name because people really like the name. Yeah. Both of them had amazing open relationships in them. They're different ones. Completely. So check that out. Like I said, at touchofflavor.com forward slash AOR. And we will link to it in the show notes as well, at touchofflavor.com forward slash 032. And I think that that is going to help you immensely in what you're trying to do. So go check that out. And like I said, just you know, just know it is a workable situation. We say work all the time. You're just, you just have a, a lot of skills that both you and your partner are going to need to pick up to make it work successfully. All right, guys. Thanks for all the questions. We love getting them. Uh, you can always send some in and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Touch of Flavor podcast, where we're building relationships outside of the box. Got a question about kink, power exchange, or open relationships that you've been holding on to for years? This is the place to ask it. Submit your question at atouchofflavor.com slash ask. Or leave us a voicemail at 833-ASK-TOF-1. And it is, oh, I'm going to botch the guy's name. Professor Marston? The Marston? Google. Google time. Wait. <laughs> or live. We're not live. People can't hear us. We're recording. I guess live is the wrong word. Yeah.